Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. So hi, today I'm very excited. I've managed to get someone up from London into Stratford-upon-Avon who is the CEO of the amazing charity called Eve Appeal. She's Anthena Lamniasos and we've worked together for a few, on a few events, a few things and every time I see patients who have had cancer of their cervix or their ovary, I'm always overwhelmed and shocked by how a lot of them haven't had the right help, certainly since their diagnosis with their menopause. So welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So before we really get started into menopause, which clearly is all I talk about, I thought we'd take a step back and just um, ask a bit about the charity, what it is, and also your involvement. How did you become to be involved with it? Yeah, well, thanks very much. And you've just used a really interesting phrase there, take a step back. And, and that's very much what we do as a cancer charity. So um, we're really very different as a cancer charity. We are trying to stop cancer before it starts. So, you know, there are many, many cancer charities out there and an amazing hospice movement that's out there as well. But we're trying to stop cancer, as I say. So we're focused on prevention and awareness raising of the signs, symptoms and the fact that these cancers even exist. So what do we do? We do three things. We fund medical research, and that's medical research focused across the five gynae cancers. So they are womb, sometimes known as endometrial or uterine cancer, and it doesn't help that we kind of use three words interchangeably for that part of the the female reproductive um, organs. Ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, which is the one that most people have heard of, Mm. but is not the one that a lot of women are diagnosed with each year. And there are lots of reasons for that that I'll come on to talk about. Vaginal and vulval cancer. And no one talks about about those cancers. So we fund medical research across those five cancers. And that medical research is focused on prevention, risk prediction and early diagnosis so trying to find new screening methods Mm -hmm. um, to refine current screening methods where they exist so for example it's great we've got an effective cervical screening program it would be even more amazing if we could detect HPV and cell changes in other ways as uh, apart from um, a a smear test which a lot of people find unacceptable yeah yeah and just remind everyone hpv so that is so hpv is one of the risk factors for two of the gynecological cancers it's human papillomavirus yeah it's a very very smart clever virus that we will all come across Mm. at some point in our lifetime there are lots of myths around hpv it's seen as a sexually transmitted disease by some which in many ways i suppose it is in that you come across it through sexual contact contact or touching so it doesn't need to be penetrative sex you know so unless you're a nun and a very well behaved nun you are going to come across HPV if you've just had sex once you know you could be at risk of HPV most of us just flush it out it's not a virus that will cause an illness cause an illness an infection that needs treating exactly or that we'd Mm. even be aware of for some of us we don't flush it out and our body 
undergo cell changes which lead to cancer. Now, that's not just cervical cancer. It's one of the high-risk factors for um, many of the throat cancers, Mm -hmm. which are more prevalent in men. I think it's about 90% Mm -hmm. uh, men who are diagnosed with throat cancers. It's a risk factor for anal cancer, so both men and women, and it's a risk factor in vulval cancer. So it's a really, really important virus, one, to understand, and there's woeful, woeful, woeful knowledge around um, HPV as of as a virus and what you're at risk for, but um, a really important virus just to destigmatize de- and myth bust around yes. because you know there is just no shame in it. it there really mm. isn't. So that's that's the kind of research end of things. Yes. So we're looking at, at prevention and uh, risk prediction and new screening programs. The second thing that we do and really important is to raise awareness of the signs, symptoms risk factors and just the fact that the cancers even exist yes because what we so often hear and is so depressing is that the first time a woman has even heard of one of these cancers is when they're sitting in a small white room being told by someone in a white coat that they've got one and that really needs to change the other thing that is really important about awareness raising is taking that step back so it's not just taking that step back in terms of the research and looking at how cancer develops and so how we can intervene and stop it but it's also taking that step back and thinking about what are the issues that sit around these cancers in terms of risk factors and signs and symptoms that we need to we need to address so the fact that there's such a lack of knowledge around the parts of the reproductive anatomy that often people don't know what those words are, yes. what those parts of the body are called, that people struggle to even name when their last period was due, let alone ask answer detailed questions like, when's your next period due? When did you start your periods? How long is your average cycle? You're literally kind of met with a mm, look, yeah. um, which your menstrual, knowing your menstrual health is an important really indicator important. for yes. other aspects mm. of your health. It's a really, really important thing for you to be able to talk through with your GP. Being able to talk to the GP about where you've specifically found a lump or an itch or you've got a pain is really important, not just saying, I've got a problem with my waterworks yes. or the all-famous I've got a problem down there or with my bits. You know, that really doesn't help your GP. And you have a very short amount of time with your GP and you need to maximise that opportunity. You know, there's a clue in the G word, general. You can't be experts on everything. No, you're totally right. I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of women who you have a consultation about their sore throat or their cough or something. And as they're going out the door, they say, oh, I just want to say I found a lump down there. And they've got their clothes on, their gloves, it's winter. you're thinking oh my gosh I'm already running 20 minutes late but you have to examine them so I think the education that you do to um, make it acceptable it's a lot easier if I had a rash on my arm I would show my GP look this um, this doesn't look right but somehow when it's your genitals we're so British we don't talk about it and it's delaying that diagnosis absolutely and it really does yes and being able you know feeling able to say to the doctor I'm happy to be examined mm. if you think so it would help. And it doesn't matter. I think so many women, if I say to them, well, can I just examine you? Oh, I haven't had a wash. Mm. Can I go and have a shower? Yeah. Do you know what? I look at smelly feet. Mm. I look, it doesn't, as a doctor, yeah. we are not emotional when we examine patients. No. And the same, men have got eyes. Male doctors can still examine. Even if they're not sure what it is they see, they know if it's an abnormality or yeah. not. So. Yeah. 
And if you think about, you know, opening your mouth for the dentist or totally. etc., it's exactly it the is, same. Yeah, yeah. So um, raising awareness and education around all of the issues that sit around the gynaecological yeah. cancers and gynaecological health is really important. Mm. So that's everything from um, periods through to menopause and everything in between. Mm. It's also answering questions around hereditary risk. Um, people are beginning to understand that cancer development is more complex complicated than just your lifestyle or just your diet or just your genetics or just bad luck you know there's a whole confluence of factors and they're really Mm. complicated factors all of the issues around inherited mutations and there are a few that make you very at risk and at high risk of, of, of gynecological cancer development is really important Then the third thing that we do, and the only direct service that we run, is called Ask Eve. It's a gynaecological cancer nurse service. So that whole the whole mantra of that service is it's a taboo-free zone. We're the only charity that employ a gynae onc specialist nurse, so a gynae oncology specialist nurse, and that's for any questions. Nothing is too small, too embarrassing. It's by telephone, it's by email, and we do a lot of workplace talks around the issues. Um, And that can be really helpful to women who are putting off going to the doctor because they're too embarrassed or they think it's something that they should be pushing aside because it's just one of those things. We often get that. So, for example, one of the red flag symptoms for womb cancer is postmenopausal bleeding. No amount of postmenopausal bleeding should be considered normal. It may not be cancer. And quite often, Often these signs and symptoms are not cancer. But we should be rolling cancer out first rather than waiting, 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 waiting and then ruling it out last when things, you know, have developed. We know what late diagnosis means with many cancers. So that service is a really valuable way of being able to express concerns. It's much easier kind of emailing or talking down the telephone when you don't have to look into the whites of someone's eyes and say... I'm really worried my discharge is smelly this and has been for the last six months and I don't is that is that normal so that must be really busy yeah. is it it is really busy and it, it has real kind of peaks and troughs around where awareness is um, in yes. terms of media, which is a really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You then begin to see both the, the power of the amount of health media yes. coverage some stories are, yeah. are given and also the anxiety that's induced through yeah, and I think information getting out there. Totally, but it's funny a balance, isn't it? Because when yeah. they do, for example, ovarian cancer is notoriously hard to diagnose and they do a campaign saying, if you've had any bloating, go and see your GP... And most women who have bloating mm. do not have ovarian cancer. Mm. So it's good that people come, but then GPs go, oh my gosh, we're mm. so busy. Um, but I think so much more now, especially with the way the NHS is so stretched and it is nearly broken. So anything we can do to help is good. Mm. But it's about educating the women to empower them so they know other symptoms that possibly could occur in ovarian cancer. Like you say, vulval cancer, what it is, mm. changes that might occur. Yeah. I think the whole bleeding issue is really important because mm. as women we we just get on with things don't we and yeah. the amount of women that tell me that they have to change their tampon every half an hour they're flooding their bed but they've always done that and mm. it's, it's just got slightly worse and they put up with it can yeah. you imagine a man putting up with that no. it wouldn't happen no. No. um so and the more that women can target their 
valuable appointment. Mm. Um, and I, because of the way GPs working, you don't often see your same GP or you don't know who you're going to see until you phone up in the morning. And even some women say, well, I, I couldn't get in because it was only an urgent appointment. Mm. Well, if they've got bleeding mm. and it's abnormal, it's urgent, mm. isn't it? Because mm. it could be a cause mm. that needs some... We well, certainly need to investigate. Totally. Yeah. So I think we need to change our slump, but also women need to... Um, go with the right information so to look up the right information from the right sources and really say to the GP I am concerned and Mm. I actually I want to be examined like you say or I I need a referral because that's really important isn't it that we as women take responsibility for us absolutely the whole mantra is know your body you have to know your body so you can spot what isn't normal for you you've got to know your normal to spot what is abnormal totally And um, one of the things that we've done, which is a really well-used resource um, on the website, is we've produced a set of top tips for having a good gynae conversation when you go to your GP. And it's really some things which you might think are obvious, but they really, really need to be remembered. So thinking about, you know, do you know the name of your contraceptive pill? Do you know what other um, kind of hormone-related medication you might have been taking? Uh, Don't worry about whether you've shaved, waxed, got the right underwear on, all of those things. They do not matter. Do express that you don't mind being examined if the GP thinks that's helpful. Do think about, um, you know, uh, what your HRT medication is, you know, how long you've been taking it. Think about things like um, the the questions that you might be asked about your hormone history, the number of pregnancies that you've had, whether you've taken, whether you've had IVF, all of the things that might might be helpful and might be, you know, very helpful to reflect on. Do you know when your mother's menopause was? All of those things. Just have a think about them so you're not put on the spot and left with giving very little information to your GP. Because it's so important. I know myself, if I go and see my doctor, I do feel a bit nervous. And yeah. I go, I'm wasting his time. I've got to be really quick. Yeah. And, and then you come out, oh, I wish I'd said yeah. whatever. So exactly. it's exactly. it's really important. So so out of the five gynecological cancers, which is the most common? Womb cancer. Womb cancer. Womb cancer. And, you know, it, it is uh, pretty much the one that, that's least known as well, yes. which is a real irony. Yeah. So womb cancer primarily, um, in sort of the largest numbers, um, affects postmenopausal women. Yes. Um, it has a town crier of a symptom mm. in most cases, which is postmenopausal bleeding. So when we say postmenopausal, if you're postmenopausal, then it's a year after your menopause. So if your periods have stopped yeah. and it's been more than a year since your last period officially, you're postmenopausal. So like you quite rightly say, any bleeding you need to, to see. get checked. Most people who have bleeding in this stage do not have cancer. No. So we don't want people to go worrying that they have got cancer or or that potentially have cancer. Most people don't, but there's usually a cause. So sometimes it can mm. be, I saw a lady yesterday in my clinic and she'd had a really bad vaginal dryness. The lining of the vagina become very thin, irritated, and she was a fell runner. So her running had exacerbated some bleeding, but she was examined, had some treatment. And so it's very important. There is a cause. Mm. Um, and like you say, most people don't. A lot of people, though, do get referred as a two-week wait, which means it's a suspected cancer. And so that can be quite scary, can't it? So you go to your GP, you've 
you know that most cases aren't cancer and then you suddenly see this referral saying suspected cancer. The reason I'm mentioning it is really to reassure people because it's the only way as GPs, isn't it, we can get women seen within two weeks. Um, Yeah, and I think we need to sort of shift the mindset, don't we, where it's a really good thing to rule cancer out first. Because what we see at the moment, if we look at the national cancer statistics, so if we look at the national cancer audit um, and the way things are categorised in terms of diagnosis and delays in diagnosis, Mm -hmm. there's this whole chunk of avoidable delays which is caused by, and I say caused you know, really likely actually, because it's it's caused by the patient almost knowing they've got symptoms but not seeking medical help. So there's this delay. That's where your there, work is, which crucial. is where our work yes. comes in. Yeah. There's this next stage of delays, and they're categorised as avoidable delays. And avoidable breaks my heart to read it as a word, yeah. um, which is caused after they've been to the GP and before being diagnosed because what you have is this repeated story of to and fro and to yes. and fro whilst IBS is ruled out, yes. whilst coliac disease is ruled out, while all these other things that aren't cancer are ruled out. And what I would prefer to move to is let's rule out cancer first yes. and then Definitely. move on to looking at what the other myriad of things that it might be. um, And I think it's very important because, as you know, I'm sure, the earlier a cancer is diagnosed, the more treatable it is. And and certainly for uh, cancer of the womb... It's, it's actually a Very good treatable. cancer to have if it's picked up early. So if yeah. a woman has bleeding early, goes on the two-week wait, has an investigation, finds cancer, there's different treatments, but they're usually treatable, yeah. isn't it? And yeah. so, Absolutely. Which is a very different story if it's, if it's been left. Yeah. Um, and the women who have late stages often then do admit that they have had bleeding for quite a long time, which yeah. is a great shame. Yeah. So you you raise a really interesting point there. So, well, not only does common sense and everything that we know tell us that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and it is across all aspects of women's health. We know that for every pound we put into contraception, um, the health service benefits nine pounds. You know, there's a real benefit to prevention across the board. All of the great moves in health have involved prevention whether that's been vaccination or even before that cleaning wards and washing your hands it's all been about disease prevention so we know that we also know that there are cancers with very good prognoses so if they're caught early you know as you say with just surgery um, womb cancer has got a very good prognosis so you asked about you know which is the 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 biggest cancer affects women now that's womb cancer If you were to ask the question another way, so which is the gynecological cancer that most women die of, that's ovarian cancer. So over 50%, it's about 52% of women who die of one of the five gynecological cancers within five years of diagnosis will die of ovarian cancer. And that is just just a horrible and brutal um, statistic. I mean, the average time for diagnosis is... Long, isn't it? And I read somewhere that the average number of doctors a woman sees before she's diagnosed with symptoms related to ovarian cancer is seven, is it, or eight? So 
And it's often diagnosed in the A&E department, isn't it? Which yeah. you wouldn't expect for a gynaecological cancer. No, you really wouldn't. So we still have far too many cancers, be of ovarian cancer, being diagnosed at A&E. Yeah. We still have most cancers, about three quarters, being diagnosed at stage three or four, yeah. where um, you know the prognosis is, is poor. Whereas if they were diagnosed at stage one or two, um, it's about 90% will survive five years, uh, over five years. So, you know, it's a very, very different... One of the things is it's it's so hard to diagnose sometimes because you don't get the bleeding necessarily, like we've already mentioned with womb cancer. The symptoms are quite vague, like I said before, the bloating, sometimes some pain. People sometimes just feel a bit more tired and you know, lots of us have those symptoms, so it can be really difficult. Certainly as a doctor, I've always told, if someone comes with the same symptom more than three times, you take them really seriously. And I think that's probably, I wouldn't want anyone listening to this thinking, oh gosh, I've had a bit of bloating, I've had a bit of tiredness. But if it's persistent, and also if things change, isn't it? I think that's the big thing with anything in medicine. If um, some people always have bloating some people always have some pain Mm. but if it's suddenly changed Mm. and you don't feel right then you have to Mm. go and see and like you say it could be they've got celiac disease or something else but certainly um a lot of people feel that they're pestering the doctors who are already really busy but it could be a nurse that they see couldn't it it could be even phoning up just for some advice to say, is it appropriate for me to see my doctor? And the thing is that there are quite a lot of diseases that uh, have got vague, in inverted commas, symptoms. But what you very rarely find is that that patient hasn't noticed something, but they've been ignoring it, and they probably didn't, you know, it's the lack of awareness. They didn't know, they just didn't know what they don't know and they don't they didn't well, know that it, that, that it could be yes. cancer yeah and so we come back to the the you know let's rule cancer out mm. first rather than waiting 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 so it's on average about three to six visits to the gp yeah. before even a patient is referred for ca125 yes. which is the first so a ca125 is a blood test looking at a blood marker which you know isn't a diagnosis of cancer but it can be an indicator if it's raised that something, something going is going on in your body. Yes. It might mean, again, it might mean a whole multitude of things. Yeah. You asked at the beginning, Louise, about what brought me yes. here. So yeah. um, I've worked uh, in the charity sector and on issues-based communications forever for all through my career. Mm. And I've done a lot of work around public health. And through that work, I've done a lot of work on big public health campaigns with the Department of Health and the Department of Education, so on. Every cheerful issue from flu immunisation to sexual health to teenage pregnancy to um, substance misuse, alcohol, drugs misuse, etc. Really varied. So very varied. All of these kind of big public health issues and how do we shift behaviour? What information do people have? How do we help them? Because that's the key thing for me. How do we help people? behave differently and take on the information in a useful way because there's no use you know we all know that smoking doesn't you know enhance our health that doesn't stop many people from smoking that's not the way to impart health information so I did a lot of through that work I did a lot of work around cancer and screening uptake and did some really interesting projects which really opened my eyes to the barriers that people had around certain interventions and particularly around prevention. So I did one piece of work in Tower Hamlets where breast screening uptake was really low. Mm. 
And breastfeeding just feels like kind of common sense, doesn't it? You know, people have lived with it for years. It's, you know, everyone, breast cancer is everywhere. People know how how horrible it can be. And you just think, well, why are people not doing it? Tower Hamlets was, is interesting as an area of London because there are two very big populations there. There's um, a, a white indigenous population who have been there forever and, you know, have grown up in the East End of London and they've been there for generations. And then there's a reasonably new, primarily Bangladeshi population who are quite recently arrived, who have got very good health outcomes on other levels, but have got fairly poor health outcomes, certainly around screening uptake Mm -hmm. and around some cancers. And looking at how those two communities reacted to just receiving that letter about breast screening and understanding their barriers and why they weren't booking the appointments and weren't attending were really illuminating and entirely different for both communities entirely different so we did focus groups with the white women for a better Mm. way of describing them as a group who said I don't want to see anything that's got the word cancer on it in fact they very rarely used the word cancer they called it the c word and we've heard stories about women going for screening they didn't think anything was wrong then they end up having a mastectomy they've been mutilated their husbands don't fancy them anymore really negative view of if I go for screening, I'm going to get cancer. I don't want to talk about cancer. don't want to acknowledge that it might happen to me. I don't want to know about denial, it. Denial, really. Real denial. Mm. And I'm going to get, you know, if I go, I'm going to, th- I'm going to find out bad news. Yes. The, for the Bangladeshi community, it was, the letter is inaccessible to me. Yeah. I have to give it to my son or my husband to read for me. And I don't want something with the word breast in it. Mm. I don't know even where the clinic is that they're talking to. And I need to be chaperoned. And I is in a, is in a street that I haven't heard so they or probably wanted, been to. wanted to go but didn't know And I, I don't want to be talked to in those... Mm. I don't want to be talked to in those terms. So we developed two very different um, communications campaigns uh, for motivating those audiences. For one population, it was very much about really pushing to the fore the fact of how many women who go for screening are actually detected with cancer. Most of those women will find really good news. They will get good news about their health. And so, you know, you're not, you know, don't look look upon, you know, look upon screening as a reassurance, not upon something that's going to give you some horrible diagnosis. For the Bangladeshi women, it was about giving them a letter which was in, you know, an accessible form for them that came from a female GP that they could recognise and that came from their, you know, their, their demographic. It was about telling them, giving them messages about protecting their health for their families, so not talking about breast, you know, which they just didn't want to, you know, receive information like that, talking about how they could get to the clinic and how accessible it was and how transport could be organised around it. Um, but really talking about the health benefits for them and their families and pushing that to the fore as the message. So that led me to think about um, health prevention, led me to think about what the barriers were. And I started, I'd always felt that there was a real inequality in terms of women's health. You know, we as women, we spend a lot of time in touch with health services, not because we're ill, just because we're female. So from periods Mm -hmm. through to contraception, trying to get pregnant, trying to not get pregnant, um, being pregnant, um, having terminations, going through IVF, 
going through perimenopause, going through menopause. You know, there's this whole kind of reason why we have to have and access good health care. And yet we're not ill. We're just being female. Um, which I felt really need to, needed to come to the fore. So I looked long and hard for a charity that I could lead, which had that prevention focus that was focused around women's health. And that's when I alighted upon Eve. Um, and I felt that it had that, that kind of, you know, there was a lot, there's a lot of communications that's needed mm. around these issues. And I felt that was a kind of good match. So how long have you been with them? So I've been here for five years and it feels like a blink on one level. Yes. And then I just feel like there's so much to do still on yes. another. I mean, I think it's a bit like the menopause, isn't it? Any stone you lift up yeah. so much, you don't know whether to keep it open yeah. or to, to put it down and open another one. And it's, um, it is it is overwhelming. And I think the more stories that you hear from women, the more, I'm sure it certainly drives me, but I'm sure it drives you as well, that you... You know, there's so much that prevention is is key. Um, I've already mentioned how the NHS is struggling, but we can really help the NHS if we can help prevent a lot of conditions and diseases. And, and we can't ever, I don't think, prevent cancer, but we can change the shift so women are having an earlier diagnosis, which means they're more successful treatment often, and that's what's really important, isn't it? It's the only thing that will help the NHS shifting towards a preventative healthcare model and people taking charge of their health and working more in partnership with the health services that we have. And there are some cancers, early detection is obviously key, there are some cancers that we know we can prevent. Well, cervical cancer, I mean, it's so different when I was a medical student. It's really different. And and now with the the boys being vaccinated, it's it's a real step, isn't it? So that might be a disease that... Absolutely. It's something we look back at in history. And with the cancers where we know that there's a hereditary risk, we yes. know that there are interventions that we can make. They're not easy interventions. No. So having surgery, being plunged into an early menopause, changing your fertility outcomes, etc. That's mm. not easy. No. There's not a walk in the park no. um, in terms of a preventative option. But... It keeps you alive for your family. It keeps you alive and thriving. And it certainly does prevent cancer. Yes. And um, there are all sorts of other interventions that, that, that we're looking at that are not kind of within sights as in they're not going to change things tomorrow. It's not like food colouring into water. Mm. But over the course of our lifetime, I think what we're finding out about genomics and what we're finding out about our own genes and what we can switch off and switch on we're not a million miles away and I don't think we're a million miles away from our grandchildren Mm. I hesitate to say our children in our case Louise but our grandchildren possibly being genetically tested at birth and so knowing what kinds of diseases they're at risk of and knowing what prevention they should be taking from birth yes which is which is really key it is all about risk and that's not easy either lots of people don't want that information you know well this they don't want to know what their risks are you know you've alluded to about the the BRCA gene and the risk reducing surgery some women choose to have a bilateral um, mastectomy but also some women choose to have their ovaries removed but then there will be some women who will have the surgery and they'll have never had cancer and you don't we don't know which those are so it, and i think this gets me back to all the work that i do it's about individualized choice and i think choice is a really important word 
but I really feel you can only make the choice when you've got the right information. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. that's, that's really key because I feel there's a lot of women that I speak to, and I had this conversation with you earlier today, who have had a type of gynecological cancer and they have been, because of the treatment usually, flawed into the menopause. Mm. And a lot of women are incorrectly told they can't have HRT. Mm. Um, and these women's lives have been te- difficult because of the cancer, difficult mm. because of the cancer treatment, but even mm. worse because of the menopause. Mm. And I saw a lady yesterday who came from Essex, so she travelled quite a few hours with her daughter. Mm. She'd had cancer of the cervix diagnosed um, about four years ago. Mm. She'd had chemotherapy, radiotherapy... And then she became housebound because she was so dizzy mm. and, and no one knew what it was. And then a doctor just said, well, I think it might be your menopause, mm. gave her some HRT and within days she felt better. Mm. And then she moved to a different surgery and they said, no, you've been on HRT for two years now, you have to stop. Mm. And her oncologist said, you have to stop. Mm. And she'd become housebound again. And her daughter was so worried about her, she'd not stopped going out with her friends, mm. completely withdrawn. Um, and women that have had cancer of the cervix can have HRT mm. and there's benefits um, for their long-term health, their bone health, their heart health, as well as their symptoms. And, um, you know, for every one woman like that I see in my clinic, there must be thousands, if not millions of women who are suffering in the same way. Mm. And as you know, I get incredibly frustrated when people don't have the right information. And if they have the right information, they can then usually speak to a healthcare professional to make the right decision for them. Um, And so I think the work that you're doing is phenomenal, Um, overwhelming, I'm sure at times. Um, So just finally, I would just like to ask you three take-home tips just for women to maybe reflect on and think on and share with their female friends and relatives as well to help. Yeah, and I just want to, I don't know if this is a tip, it's going to be an extra tip, it might be on before, but just to pick up on what you've said uh, there about choice, because I have a fierce attachment to every healthcare decision being a woman's choice. Mm. You can choose whether you have chemotherapy or not there might be lifestyle factors personal factors that mean that you don't want to do certain things and that's fine that's absolutely fine every decision vaccination needs to be a decision Mm. for you um whether to go for your screening needs to be a decision for you personal choice is very very important i have an equally fierce attachment to facts and Mm. evidence yes and there is a horrible proliferation of questionable information out there Mm. and a horrible dearth of information out there in accessible formats for many women on these issues so it's the facts and evidence I really am very attached to them and um, that is that's really close to Mm. our heart Eve making sure that, that that women have that information and therefore are able to make that informed choice yes. and are able to give informed consent to whatever procedure it is. Yeah. So that's that's sort of number Perfect. one, but yes. it's kind of number one point one. So um, three things: you need to know your menstrual health. You really do Basically. need to know your your periods and what's normal for you. And if you're not having periods, you need to be able to remember when your last period was. Excellent. And when, yes. When you were postmenopausal, I'm yes. sure you must come across this all the time. Yes. This slightly quizzical look when you say, so, so when, when was your last make period? A note. Make a note of it. Yeah. The second thing I would say is we really need to break the culture of stigma and taboo around gynae health. So 
use proper language, learn the proper language. Yes. It's absolutely fine using silly euphemisms if you know, you know what, what things are what bits yes. you're describing. Indeed, it's, there's no problem in calling your stomach your tummy or your toes your tootsies everyone knows what they are it really doesn't help when you start talking about your waterworks and your bits you do need to know what's going on inside your pelvis and what's going on between your legs and then that's number three look at your vulva really do know your body so really you know do have a look look at what's normal for you do really understand your body and know your normal so you can begin to describe that to a medical professional. Great. Thank you ever so much. And just finding your website, Eva Peel. Yeah, so do contact the Ask Eve service. That's the nurse service I was talking about. So that's called Ask Eve and you can email nurse at eveappeal, one word, eveappeal.org.uk and our website is eveappeal.org.uk and on social media, so Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, we are at eveappeal. So follow us, share. Excellent. Carry on the dialogue. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. That's been wonderful. Thank you very much. For more information about the menopause, please visit our website www.menopausedoctor.co.uk.